I want to invite you to turn to a couple of scriptures. Um, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think it is, and then 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are um, teaching a, a series, uh, concluding a series actually, to, uh, today that, uh, that we began, well, I think this is the fourth week, that we've uh, entitled Understanding the Times. And I've, uh, we began with a scripture back in First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. I'm going to read that to you while you're turning to the other places. The, uh, the point in time in First Chronicles chapter 12 is when David, has, um, uh, he's been anointed to be king of Israel uh, while Saul is still king. And Saul recognizes the hand of God is upon him, so Saul's trying to kill him. So David's out running for his life, basically. And while he's out there, the Lord brings uh, other people to him. And it tells of all the people that, uh, that, that God brought to David, uh, that uh, he turned into what was called David's mighty men. And it says of one group of people, First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32, and it says, And of the children of Issachar, it's naming all the different tribes and who came and, and things like that. And it says, And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. That, that verse of Scripture has always stood out to me, in, in, uh, well, from the time that I read it, probably 30 years, 35 years ago. And it's uh, the, the phrases that really get to me is, uh, first of all, they had understanding of the times. That's important for us. It's important for us to know where we live as far as God's time frame is concerned. But then it says something even further, and, 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 you know, you can, honestly, you can study Revelation, you can study the end times, you can study a lot of things that a lot of people seem to do. A lot of ministries really focus on that. But then it goes further about these folks, and, I, and it seems to me that a lot of people that, that spend a lot of their time studying about the end times miss the import of what this verse is really trying to say. It said they have understanding of the times, and here was the result, to know what Israel ought to do. See, a lot of people know about the end times, but they don't know what they ought to do. A lot of people study and read Revelation and gather all kinds of uh, stuff, and you can get, find uh, novels out there, a big series of things about Revelation and fictional accounts based on what the Bible says. And all those things are good; uh, they're they're great. They attract a lot of attention. But what do we do with it? We spent the last three weeks talking, kind of giving an overview, and that's all you can do in the time that we've had is give an overview of what the Bible says about the rapture, the catching up of the church into heaven the beginning of the tribulation period in that seven-year period, and then the millennium after that, the thousand years after that, and the new heaven and the new earth that takes place following that. We've given some information, and the Bible doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us some things. And so we've kind of given an overview of the things that are going to come. But now the question is, what do we do? If we just know about the plagues and, and, and all the things that are going to take place during the tribulation, but don't know what to do now, what good is that? The reason that the, that the revelation is the revelation, it's not the revelation of the end. It's not the revelation of doom and gloom. It's not the revelation of plagues. It's the revelation of Jesus. And just like in Egypt, when God brought those ten plagues upon the Egyptians for the purpose, the express purpose of Pharaoh releasing the children of Israel, those plagues were righteous judgment upon sin, the sin of Egypt, which represents the world that was holding back the people of God. But even in the midst of those plagues, the reason that God didn't just exact judgment once and for all, one time, instead of showing them again and again and again, was so that they could escape the final judgment. 
It was an opportunity for them to turn. And the book of Revelation is all about that during the tribulation period. Over and over and over again, God keeps showing himself to be the most high God, the creator of the heaven and earth, the strongest power that there is, even in the face of others standing up saying, I'm God. God shows himself to be strong so that people would turn, but they wouldn't. It says they held on to their sin. They still rebelled against God. They cursed God in the midst of it rather than recognizing that this is God showing you that there's still an escape available. So what are we to do? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I want to remind you of some scriptures. And I think we've looked at uh, some of these. I think uh, maybe the first Sunday of the series, we looked at this in, uh, uh, real quickly. But I want, to, I want to cover it a little bit more in depth this morning. And I, I know what time it is, and I'll, I'll let you out in time. Whatever that means. But I want to, uh, I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 4 and then 2 Timothy chapter 3. But I want to read it to you from the message translation. Now I don't recommend the message translation in most cases because the message, the the message Bible is really not a translation. It's a paraphrase. And so you can't take the message and, and go back to the original language and stuff like that like you can with the King James and, and a few others. But I want to, because of the, um, because of the difficulty of some of the words that are used in the King James, I want to read these verses of Scripture to you from the message. Now, you follow along in the King James or whatever you read with, whatever you've got uh, uh, with you, and it, it may be on the screen as well while I read. But I, this really kind of brings it out in, in common language that I, I want you to hear this. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says that the Spirit makes it clear. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a minister. Paul told Timothy more about the condition of the world in the last days than he told anybody else. Because he needs to know what to do with things that are coming. Now, Paul didn't give him a time frame. Paul speaks in, in, uh, in such a way that these are the, th- the way things are going to be before you die. Which we know now, almost 2,000 years later, things are continuing and, and lining up with exactly what he said. So he says this. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit makes clear that as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. They will tell you not to get married. They'll tell you not to eat this or that food. Perfectly good food that God created to be eaten heartily and with thanksgiving by believers who know better. Then I want you to look with me over to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, what is it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it is. Here's the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And he goes into even more detail. This is the last thing he says to Timothy. This is the, this, well actually he identifies to Timothy that he's about to go home to be with the Lord. And, uh, church history tells us that Paul was martyred very soon after he wrote this letter. So he said this, chapter 3, 2 Timothy. He said, don't be naive. Again, this is from the message translation. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of these people. Now, who's he talking about? When he's talking in First Timothy, the first letter that he wrote, chapter 4, when he's talking about 
Doctrines of devils. King James says doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. Well, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the world? Well, folks, has there ever been a time that the, that the world hasn't been carried away with doctrines of devils and seducing spirits? Is there any reason for the Holy Ghost to identify that about the world? I mean, don't we know that the world is dominated by the devil already? When Paul writes this in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, when he says that these difficult times are, are coming along and that men are going to be this way, what men is he talking about? Is he talking about men of the world? Well, when have men of the world not been like that? When have the unsaved not operated in that manner? He's got to be talking about the church. And it and it's proven by the fact that Paul says to Timothy in both cases, here's what you do about it. Hold fast to the things that I taught you, he said in the first letter. In the second letter, he said, preach the word. There's only one thing that's going to make a difference. And please understand, he's talking about there's going to be a distinction between those who are believers in and doers of the word and the way that the church looks very much like the world. Now, when does he mean? Well, he's talking about the end times. He said the Spirit speaks expressly that in the end times, this is what it's going to be like. So what is he telling us? He's telling us that the church, a certain segment of the church at least, is going to be deceived. Because nobody operates this way. No Christian operates in either of these conditions, either of the things that Paul identifies in the first letter he wrote to Timothy or the second letter that he wrote to Timothy, except that they are deceived. You sure can't get this kind of behavior from what Jesus said to live like. So if you're living like this, then you've got to be deceived if you're claiming to be a Christian. Right? It's always caught my attention that Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, when he, he walks through the temple and he says, the, the disciples are all gaga about it. and said, oh, have you ever seen anything as beautiful as this place? Well, it was Herod's temple. Jesus despised Herod's temple because it wasn't built to the glory of God. Man built it to the glory of man. And so Jesus said there's coming a time where there won't be one stone left upon another. Now, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., just some 36, 37 years later from the point when Jesus said that, because there was gold, because Herod had put gold in the, the, uh, the mortar between the stones, they took one, every stone off of the other one to get the gold out of the middle. And so Jesus was speaking very literally. He said, there will not be one stone left upon another. And then he started talking about the end times. And and his disciples came to him afterwards and said, well, Lord, when is this going to be? The first thing Jesus said is, take heed that you be not deceived. Now, we usually go back to going down to the the following verses where it talks about earthquakes and people against people and, and different things like that, plagues and famines and pestilences. First thing Jesus said was the sign of the end was don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The rest of it doesn't matter if you're deceived. So he said, take heed that you be not deceived. So folks, if we understand the end, if we understand that we are at the end times, then the number one thing that we need to guard against is being deceived so that we don't become these people that Paul wrote to Timothy about and that we don't miss the things that Jesus told us about the end. Now, I would submit to you that most of the church world, most of the church world, now if we're talking percentages, it's certainly over half. I don't know how much to give it to because I'm not the one that controls what the church is doing around the world. And I don't even, there's a lot of things that are going on around the world that we don't even know. There's a lot of good things that are happening around the world that we'll never even hear of till we get to heaven. We'll hear all the bad stuff. Don't, don't worry about that. That's a, that's a guarantee. And so we have a tendency to think that everything is going down the tubes. Folks, you need to realize every generation has said about the young people that they're going to the dogs. 
I started to bring up a quote that, that, that was written back in the 1920s about the condition of the, of the young people. And it's exactly what's happening today. Every, every adult generation has complained about the younger generation. Because they don't seem to care, they don't have the same character, they don't have the same desire for the things that are right and so forth. That's gone on from the beginning of time. Yet Paul says about the church that one of the things, one of the characteristics will be disobedience to parents. So that must be a supernatural thing. And folks, as far as I know, as far as my own experience is concerned, I have more pastor friends and minister friends who are fighting battles with their own teenagers. Their teenagers have gone off the deep end. They've, they've abandoned everything that they were taught growing up. They're out serving the devil. Some of them, many of them are on drugs, different things like that, stuff that they would have never imagined, stuff that the, that the teaching that they brought their children would have kept them from. You can't tell me it's not supernatural. There's a supernatural work among the young people. For that reason, young people, you need to make sure that you're not deceived. You may just think you're doing what other people are doing, but it's not. You are being pushed like a wind pushes the sails of a ship. And that wind is an evil wind. It's part of what's happening in the last days. So what do we do? Well, there's only one answer, and that is the only way to keep from being deceived is to hold fast to the word. It's the only way there is. Now, it seems to me that the church has to guard against being deceived in three areas. They have to guard against being deceived about who God is. They have to guard against being deceived about who the devil is. And they have to guard against being deceived about who they are. Because those are all areas that the devil works against us. Now, you know as well as I do that the devil works one and only one way, and that's deception. If he can't get you deceived about what you're doing or make you justify what you're doing, then you're not going to do what's wrong. Right? And how many times have we plan to do something or, or, or caught ourselves doing something, didn't see anything wrong with it, and then immediately when we did it, our heart condemned us and we realized, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, why didn't we see that ahead of time? You know, the problem with deception is you don't know you're being deceived. And so the people that are deceived are going to be just as forceful, just as confident, just as bold in what they're doing and what they're proclaiming as people who are holding fast to the truth of the word. Because they think they're right. Folks, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Good people loved God with all their hearts. And they told me things about God that were wrong. And they were sure of what they were telling me. Well, according to the Bible, they were wrong. I could talk to some of those same people today, and they would be just as sure today of the things that they told me that I know from life experience, not just from what the Bible says is wrong. That's the problem with deception. You don't know when you're deceived. Now, how does the devil try to deceive us? You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul's talking about uh, uh, a condition that uh, existed in the Corinthian church. You remember in 1 Corinthians, there was a guy that took his mother's wife and, uh, and Paul deals with it. Well, the second letter, the, what we know of is the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is where Paul says, now, it's a good thing that this guy turned around. Remember, in the first letter, Paul said he's turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God doesn't destroy flesh. But there is an authority in the church to turn somebody over for the good of the church, for the well-being and the protection of the church, to turn somebody over to Satan for that flesh, the flesh of that individual to be destroyed, that they might learn not to blaspheme and their spirit was saved in the day of the Lord. You continue to go in the wrong things and, and you can lose your place with God. 
The Bible's pretty clear on saying that. Now, I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, and I'd like to think that's the exception, but the Bible still identifies it. Well, the second letter of the Corinthians, apparently the guy turned around. Something happened, whether it was the threat of Paul turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, or his flesh really began to hurt him enough to where he changed. Because then he turns around, and Paul says, now bring him back into the fold. Don't treat him like he's still an outsider. He's repented. And then he goes further. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he says, For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. In other words, he's saying, if you guys treat him like there's still something wrong with him, even though he's repented, then the devil can use that to bring a wedge in between the church and create division. But he says, don't do that because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. But i got to tell you, it seems to me like most of the church world is ignorant of Satan's devices. Now, what does that mean? That means they're deceived. Because the Bible tells you what Satan's devices are. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we should put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That wiles of the devil literally means the traveling over, the road that the devil travels. So many people don't know which road the devil travels. He only has one road. But people don't know what that road is. That one road is into the mind. He doesn't have access to your spirit. He can't force you to do something with your flesh. The only thing he can do is try to convince you or influence you through your mind. The mind is the battleground of the devil. You ever going to fight the devil? It's going to be in the mind. It's the only place you fight him. You fight him with your mind. What does that mean? That means the struggle is for us to think right so that we're not deceived. People that believe the wrong things of God believe the wrong things of God because they think the wrong things of God. You can't believe the wrong things of God unless you think wrong about God. You can't believe right about God unless you think right about God. But so many people don't know how the devil operates. And that seems to me to be what the, what Paul is saying about the last days. It's saying people are going to be pulled away so far from the word of God that they'll accept anything and start living like the world lives. Now, folks, don't make the mistake of reading these scriptures and think that people are going to be sitting around thinking, how can I be God's enemy? The world does that, but the church doesn't do that. This is not going to be a matter of people purposely or plotting to do harm against the Christian way of life. It's going to be people that don't know because they're not in the Word. It's going to be people that don't know because they're not hearing the Word preached. It's going to be people that don't know because they're ignorant. I came across a... uh, I wasn't going to read this to you, but I am now. I came across a quote this week from Augustine. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. He was a a church leader in... um, What would it be? Late 4th century, early 5th century. He said this. He said, it is the duty then of the interpreter and teacher of Holy Scripture. That means a Christian minister. It is the duty then of the interpreter and teacher of Holy Scripture, the defender of the true faith, the opponent of error. Here's his duty. Both to teach what is right and refute what is wrong. And in the performance of this task, to conciliate the hostile, to rouse the careless, and here's the one I want you to get, and to tell the ignorant both what is occurring at present and what is probable in the future. Folks, I would submit to you that most of the Christian world right now, at least the American church, let's just talk about the American church. We know about us. Most of the American church is ignorant of what is happening now and what is probable in the future. What does that mean? That means they're deceived. Because the Bible gives you the answers. Okay, thanks for coming. (laughs) Is there any room for disagreement on this? I mean, is this just me? I know some people walk out of here saying, well, that was just Pastor Mike. 
Really? Is this just me? Folks, it's not just me. It's the way the world is going. I would submit most of the country is being carried away by those who are ignorant of what's really going on. I'm not talking about the leaders. I'm talking about the people that put the leaders in position. And every poll you look at, that's the Christian. There's a, there's a quote, there's an economist that quoted something many years ago. He said this. He said, today is the tomorrow that the bad economist yesterday told you to ignore. I know you haven't gotten that yet. There's, it'll take a while to sink in. But what, it, what he's saying is, what one economist was making the point is that we have finally come upon what the other economist said would never happen. Now it's upon us. Well, folks, that's where we're living. I thought the economy was supposed to turn around. I thought the promises were that, 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 that unemployment would go back down. I thought that we were going to cut the deficit. I thought all these, listen, I, I'm not, I'm not pointing against any one person. I'm not, I know there's one person that made all these promises. But that's not my point. Politicians make all kinds of promises. The fact is, ignorant people believe what they're being told rather than look at the facts. That's true spiritually, it's true naturally. You can't afford to be ignorant in these last days. If there's anything, any point that I want to get across in this teaching, in today's message, in this series, it is that you cannot afford to be ignorant or deceived about what's going on around you. We're too close to the end. If we're deceived, who are we leaving it up to 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 turn things around? Our kids? If we're deceived, we're going to teach deception to our kids. So they're not going to be the ones to turn around unless the special move of God gets them away from us. It's up to us. It is entirely up to us. Now, how does the devil operate? Well, the Bible says that you're made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you are made the righteousness of God, right? The Bible says whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That means free in every area. That means you are free from anything and everything the devil could bring against you or attempt against you. It's already done. It's a given. It's finished. That's why Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is because it's already done. That means there's not one thing left to do for you to be healed, for you to be prosperous, for you to be free from sin, for you to do anything or have anything. It's all yours now. But what does the devil do? He robs us not of our righteous nature. He can't do that. But he robs us of the practice of that righteousness in our in our lives by trying to bind us with sin through wrong thinking. He tells us first and foremost that you aren't free. Yeah, you might be going to heaven. He might even finally give that up. Okay, you'll go to heaven when you die. But as long as you're here, you know you're going to be bound by the desires of your flesh. Well, the Bible says that's not necessarily so. The Bible says you can overcome the desires of your flesh by thinking right, speaking right, and living right. You've got the power to do it. But how does he keep people bound? How does he keep the most, the majority of the church world, how does he keep them bound? He keeps them bound by wrong thinking, and therefore he robs them of the blessing of that righteous nature through the practice of their lives. Same thing's true where sickness is concerned. The Bible says you are healed by the stripes of Jesus. It doesn't say you're going to be. It doesn't say when we get to heaven, then we'll be healed. I get so frustrated with people saying, well, if we don't receive our healing here, we'll receive it there. Like you need it there? There's no sickness in heaven. 
There's nothing to be healed of. That's ridiculous. That's just taking one part of what the Bible says belongs to us and compromising with the devil and saying, well, okay, it might not happen here. Look, you can have it however you want to. I'm going to have mine here. The Bible says it's already mine. So therefore, it's not a matter of me getting my healing. It's a matter of me keeping the devil from stealing it from me. How does he try to steal it from me? He brings thoughts, he brings circumstances, and he tries to rob me of the practice or the experience of healing that Jesus already purchased. It's only one road he travels, folks. Same thing's true where prosperity is concerned. The Bible says that Jesus was made poor for your sake so that you, through his poverty, on the cross... The chastisement of your peace is what he suffered on the cross. You, through his poverty on the cross, might be rich. You are rich now, no matter how much money you got in the bank. Just as much as you are healed now, no matter whether sickness is attacking your body or not. How does he try to rob us of that? He can't rob us of the fact that we've been made rich, so he tries to rob us of the experience, the practice of that prosperity, or the experience of that prosperity in our lives. How? By bringing circumstances of lack. And the thought... You're not going to make it this time. It works that way with everything that Jesus purchased for us. In other words, if he can't deceive you about what is yours or how to enjoy or experience what is yours, he can't have what Jesus got you, what Jesus provided for you, right? Same thing's true where society is concerned. The same way that the devil works against us as individuals, the devil, who has only one road to travel, works against society. He tries to change the, the idea or the attitude of society. How does he do that? Well, just like you think, learn to think right in every area, individually as well as corporately or as a society through what the Bible tells you, it's the same hearing, except it's not hearing by the word, that causes society to go the wrong direction. That's why the devil has worked very diligently to get involved in the educational system. Do you know that the number one issue between uh, among people uh, under 30 is gay marriage? You ask people, the polls that ask people, what's the number one issue facing America? What's the biggest problem we have today? And under 30 says gay marriage. We've got to legalize gay marriage. Really? Remember when jobs was a problem? Remember when the economy was something people talked about as really being something that needed to be fixed? Now, all of a sudden, it's gay marriage. Legalizing gay marriage is really the issue? Seriously? Now, folks, the devil doesn't care why you're on his side, as long as you're on his side. He doesn't care if it's because you're compassionate and tolerant, and that's why you want gay marriage to be legalized. He doesn't care. He doesn't care why. He doesn't care if you're a rabid homosexual or if you're just compassionate and say, okay, it's all right with me. Either way, you're on his side of the, of, of the issue. Either way, you're promoting his agenda. I heard a, a thing on the, on the radio the other day. A lady called into a talk show on the radio, and she was talking about this abortion issue. Um, uh, not abortion, uh, immigration issue. And she was talking about, as a Christian, we need to be compassionate. We need to, to provide amnesty for the illegal aliens. And whatever that means, if that means another 40, 40 million uh, extended family that comes in, we just need to be compassionate because we should be Christ-like. And I, if I didn't have a new car, I would have put my foot through the radio. <laughs> I wanted so bad to call. I wanted so bad to say, hey, 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 I'm a Christian too, and she's an idiot. 
Because unless, unless she's taking food off her table that belongs to her kids and opening her doors up to feeding and housing everybody that can possibly get under her roof, then she's a hypocrite. Because what she's saying is she wants to take food off my table to provide for somebody else. Look, you want to do that for yourself, that's fine. But don't call that Christian compassion. There's nothing compassionate about me stealing from my kids so somebody else can have it that doesn't deserve it. You know how many abortions were uh, performed in 2012? 333,964 in America. To bring the the three-year total up to just under, uh, well, 999,000 and, uh, well, it's just under a million. I don't remember the exact number. It was just under a million. Do you know that over 75% of the women who received abortions during that period of time identify themselves as either Christians or Catholic? Over 75%. Folks, abortion is not the world's problem. The abortion is the the church's problem. It's the church that's getting abortions. And you know the the top two reasons for getting abortions? Convenience. One is it wouldn't help my career and we're strapped financially right now. People want to talk about abortion and they want to talk about rape and incest. Folks, as terrible as those issues are, as far as the numbers and statistics are concerned, those are non-issues. The problem is the church keeps killing babies. Planned Parenthood is the number one provider for abortions for the church. Now, whatever justification there is, and, and please, folks, I'm not trying. If if somebody here is, has had a baby aborted or, or experienced some terrible issues like rape or incest or things like that. I'm not excusing anything, and I'm not trying to bring condemnation on anybody. I'm just telling you that the world's in a mess. I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming. I'm putting blame on any individual. And I know a lot of people who say, yeah, Pastor Mike is a man. It's real easy for you to say. Well, okay, say what you want to about it. But the fact is still the same. The fact is that the church is killing babies. The fact is that the church is, is violating the most sacred, in my opinion, one of the most sacred principles of scripture that there is and that is they're shedding innocent blood Christians stand up in the middle of the streets and say these drone things aren't right because innocent people are being killed across the world but we're killing 334,000 of our own every year and that's okay We shouldn't be ignorant of the devil's devices, folks. We should have our eyes wide open to what's going on. We, the church, have some real problems. But there is a dual message that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. Number one, there's a lot of the church that's going to live like the world. There's no question about that. But there's another message, too. I want you to look with me. 
over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. I'm going to take something out of context. Paul's talking about husbands and wives, but he uses an example. That I want you to see the example. This is not going to be about husbands and wives, although we certainly should say that husbands ought to treat their wives in a, in a Christian manner just as wives should treat their husbands. But the point is this. Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, he said, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved, loved the church. What I want you to see is how does Christ love the church? What's his plan for the church? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, Verse 26, that he might sanctify, that means separate, and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That, or so that, he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, can I ask you a question? When is Jesus going to present this glorious church to himself? See, just at the same time that we've got Paul telling Timothy, well, things are going to get worse in the church. People are going to turn away. People are going to give heed to seducing or deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils. And men are going to live, Christian men and women are going to live like they're unsaved. That's the way their behavior is going to be. The Spirit of God is very clear about saying that's what's going to happen toward the end. At the same time, he says that Christ is going to present himself a glorious church. Is the glorious church those that, that uh, Paul is identifying in 2 Timothy chapter 3? That are lovers of self and allergic to God? Is that how the message said it? Is that what he's talking about? Is that the glorious church that he's coming for? No. No, it tells us there's going to be a distinction in the church. It tells us the church is going to be two halves. It's going to be one half of those who are still saved, just as saved as you or I, but that have turned away from the truth of the word, have turned away from the knowledge of who God is, who the devil is, and who they are. They're going to be operating in deception because they turned away from the word. But there's another half of the church. I say half, maybe I should say portion of the church, because I don't know what the numbers are going to be. But there's another portion of the church that God is looking at and says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. Now, folks, the Bible makes real clear that nobody's left behind. No Christian is left behind in the rapture. Let me just get that right up front. I'm not sure that's exactly fair. Seriously. Just me. I think it might be good to shake up the other portion of the church. Nothing like spending the first three and a half years knowing that you're in tribulation. So say, hey, maybe, maybe we ought to straighten things up. But that's not what God does. You wouldn't do that to your own kids. The Bible says the church, meaning the whole of the church, has not been appointed under wrath. So that means those that are living in an evil manner are going to be caught up to heaven just the same way that, that those that are living according to the word will be. He makes no distinction between the glorious church and the, the, the deceived church. If you'll allow me to use that term for what Paul calls, uh, speaks about in writing to Timothy. He makes no distinction whatsoever. So the glory of the 
portion of the church that is living according to the word, holding fast to the word, seems to outweigh the evil lifestyle of the deceived church. Because Jesus is coming back for all of us. When you think of it in those terms, for people to say, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? Are you out of your mind? A loving God is going to let people that live an evil lifestyle, saved, but still live like the world, still make it to heaven. Now, they won't have any rewards to go with them. They're going to be embarrassed when the award ceremony takes place in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not the white throne judgment. The church doesn't stand before the white throne, before God in the white throne judgment. The church stands before the Lord to receive rewards for the things they did that counted for eternity here on the earth and the things that they did that counted for them, for the time being, for the, the temporal things. Those things are going to burn up. So there'll be a lot of these people in the deceived church that have nothing to show for their time here on the earth. I'm not sure how that works through eternity. I'm not sure if you're embarrassed forever. I don't know. I can't see how you'd enjoy heaven if you know that you that you messed up, if you're constantly reminded that you messed up. I don't know. Where the Bible says God wipes away every tear in heaven, there's got to be Christians that are crying. Or else there's no tears to wipe away. So maybe he erases that from memory. I don't know. And to be real honest with you, I don't want to be on the other side of the issue to find out. But Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we'll pull out verse 7 rather than read it in context for the sake of time. It says, be patient therefore, brethren. Brethren means Christians, right? Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Thank God he's coming. Now, Paul talked about presenting himself a glorious church. James talks about the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the same thing. Both of them are talking about the same thing. They're talking about when Jesus appears, he's coming for a glorious church. When Jesus appears, the church will be seen in his eyes as glorious. Well, what does that mean? James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth. That's Jesus is waiting. Why is he not coming? Because he's waiting. Why hasn't he already come? Because he's waiting. Well, what in the world is he waiting for? Things are getting bad down here. Jesus, come on. What is he waiting for? For behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Now, let's take this apart piece by piece or a couple of pieces. At least let's look at a couple of things about this. Notice it says he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. There's no question, but the precious fruit of the earth has got to be people. It's the only thing God ever cares about. If God cared about the place and not the people, he'd fry the people and take the place. Right. So the only thing he could possibly care about is people. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. Is the church of 2 Timothy chapter 3 going to be winning people to the Lord? The ones that are lovers of self and and allergic to God, as the message said, are those the people going to be getting folks saved? How is it possible to get somebody unsaved saved by living that kind of lifestyle that's described in 2 Timothy? So whatever portion that is, I hope it's not more than half, but whatever portion that is, is going to be doing nothing as far as the end time and Jesus coming back is concerned. They're going to be focusing themselves on themselves. 
They're going to be deceived into thinking it's all about me. And folks, if that is not the theme of today's society, I don't know what it is. It's all about me. Well, then that means the other segment, the other portion of the church is going to have to really get busy so that they can provide this precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is waiting for. Right? That means there's only a segment or a portion of the church that's going to be doing the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus told us to do. To occupy till he comes. Occupy till he comes. It means bring in precious fruit till I get back. Right? How are we going to do that? I say we because I'm going to be part of that. I hope you will be too. I assume that you will because that's the kind of church you're going to. Let's let's just face facts. We've all established you do not come here for my sparkling personality. <laughs> right? I told you that my friend told me, he said, Mike, if you develop a personality, your church would double. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. That means there's a work that the church will complete. The precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. Well, that's pretty obvious. Until, until, in other words, there's an end point, until he received the early and the latter rain. Now, folks, all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the early and the latter rain is always a reference to the Holy Ghost. Uh, what's his name? Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost where people spoke in tongues, Peter said, this is that which Joel spoke of. And what did Joel speak of? He spoke of the rain. He said, this outpouring of the Holy Ghost is what Joel prophesied. Well, there are other prophecies in the Old Testament about the early and the latter rain. Peter is saying that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost was the early rain. That means there's a latter rain coming then. That means there's an outpouring, there's a move of the Holy Ghost. I hate to, I don't want to use just one word because if you use just one term, then people get a, a, some, a certain idea fixed in their mind about what it is. And I don't know what it is. I think it's going to be a bunch of things. I think it's going to be a move of God that results in a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. But I know this, I know it's going to be based on the Word of God and a move of the Holy Spirit combined. Smith Wilkersworth prophesied that back in 1940-something. He said, just before he died, he said, there's coming a move. The last day move. He, he spoke of different ones. He, he prophesied the, uh, the charismatic move in the 1960s. He prophesied the word movement in the uh, 70s and, and 80s. It used to be, folks, that people would run across the country. They'd fly, they'd drive, they'd do everything they had to do to get to a place where the word of God was being preached. Now they won't even turn on the TV. Now they want to go where, they, where they're made to feel good. Not where you hear the truth. The truth is not important anymore in the same measure that it was. So he prophesied those moves of the Holy Ghost. Then he said this. He said, and the last one that he prophesied that he spoke specifically about was the word, what the, what was called the word of faith movement. And he said, but there's one coming after it that will be a combination of the word and the spirit. He said, and that's the one that'll bring Jesus back. Now folks, I don't put a whole lot of stock in people's prophecies, but I believe that one. Just got to tell you, I believe that one. So Jesus has long patience for this coming back to receive the precious fruit of the earth. He has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. 
So at the same time, it's saying that a segment of the church will be living like the world. You won't be able to tell the difference between the world and the church. Another segment of the church is going to be glorious. Another segment of the church is going to have the power of the Holy Ghost on it. I know I've showed you these scriptures before, and we use them regularly in healing school, but I want you to turn back with me to Haggai chapter 2. Or at least I'll read these. I don't care if you turn or not. I'll read them to you. I know your Bible just automatically falls open to Haggai. Well, mine does now, to be honest with you. Verse 7, and I will shake all nations. Anybody see the nations being shaken? It's not just talking about earthquakes. There are earthquakes that are taking place, certainly. But it's talking about being shaken in every way. People, The earth is being shaken politically. The earth is being shaken economically. The earth is being shaken just about every way that you can. Look at the things that are going on in the Middle East. Which side do you take? I mean, what a mess. And it's just to show, it's to identify one and only one thing, and that is man can't come up with an answer. I think one of the biggest jokes of the political promise that was ever made was when President Obama said when he was running for election, where he said, I will restore the status of America in the world. Good job. Way to go. See, you're really working hard on that. And folks, I got to tell you, it's not his fault. I mean, it's his fault for lying. He knew he was lying when he said it. But nobody can. Nobody can. Anybody that thinks they could turn this stuff around does not see things from a spiritual perspective. Because the same things that would have worked 20 years ago to turn things around won't work now. I have no confidence. No, This is just me. I'm not telling you by the Spirit of God. You judge this for whatever you want it to be. Me, personally, I have no confidence for America turning around. Because now we're on a spiritual course that just having the right person in office can't reverse. I used to bleed red, white, and blue. Now I'm a man without a country. Now I'm like a foreign missionary on the field. This is not the country that it used to be. This is not the country that I knew it to be. And I would love if there would be somebody that would rise up like a Ronald Reagan or somebody that would turn things around. It's not going to happen. I tell you right now, it's not going to happen. Believe me or not, I don't care. But just write it down somewhere so you'll remember when you'll see. It's not going to happen. Because the answer for America is not politics. The answer for America is not a Republican. The answer for America is one and only one thing, and that is Jesus by the move of the Holy Ghost. If you're putting your stock in, the economy turning around. If you're going to buy a house hoping the economy is going to turn around, put some money in uh, in the bank. To re- uh, it's not going to happen. I'm not looking for the economy to turn around. Now, I, I, I fully believe God will turn my economy around if necessary. God will meet my needs, and I'm, I'm looking for the church to, to do spectacular things. Did you find Haggai yet? Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, what does it mean the desire of all nations shall come? That's talking about Jesus returning. The Bible says, Paul said that the whole earth is groaning and travailing until the return of Jesus. 
So here where it speaks the desire of all nations, it means the earth is waiting for Jesus to come back. Folks, you need to realize, even though the earth is not alive, it contains life, but it's not alive itself. The earth was not made to be subject to sin. And ever since it came under the curse of sin, it's been struggling against that sin because that's not the way God made it. The earth doesn't have a will. It can't decide to do right and wrong. But the earth, because it was made in righteousness... It was made by a righteous creator is struggling against, is groaning and struggling against the sin that holds it bound. Holds it bound. So where it says the desire of all nations shall come, it says the earth is waiting for Jesus to appear along with the sons of God. That's why Jesus' plan is the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down so that he can dwell with his people on the earth in Righteousness. It's what he originally planned for Adam before Adam messed things up. The only difference is, with the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no presence of Satan or sin. Won't be anything for us to resist. So I will shake all nations, it says, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord. Now, can I ask you a question? Is there any need for that to happen in heaven? Any need for the, for the house of God, the people of God to be filled with glory in heaven? No, the only reason, the only way you can get to heaven is if you are filled with glory. So he's got to be talking about here on the earth. Some people, some commentators say, oh, this is talking about the heavenly temple. It can't be talking about the heavenly temple. God's saying, oh, I'll fill the heavenly temple with glory. Is it not filled with glory now? Is heaven not lit by the presence of God now? Come on. Seriously. That's just wrong thinking to keep you in bondage and to hold you back from what the Bible says belongs to you now. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Do you care if God owns silver and gold in heaven? Is that, an, is that a real important issue for you? Now, I know the Bible says some people say, yeah, but the streets are at gold in heaven. Yeah, and how's that going to help you? You don't have to pay a mortgage in heaven. Silver and gold have no intrinsic value in heaven because there's no use for it. God uses it as decoration. So silver and gold is mine, has no heavenly meaning, but it ha- does have an earthly meaning. Now, for whatever reason you want to attach it, the Bible speaks of glory attached with silver and gold. The Bible speaks of the connection between silver and gold and glory. If he's talking about last days, that says to me that he's talking about financial provision for his glorious church in the last days. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. (laughs) That thrills me every time I read it. The silver is mine. Here's Jesus saying the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And in case you don't know who I am, I am the Lord of hosts. <laughs> now, does Jesus have any need for it? Not apart from you. Because he's not here. He left you in charge here. Verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. You can either look at that as Solomon's temple. Where the glory of God was so great that the priest couldn't stand to minister. 
The presence of God was so in evidence that the priest could not stand up. Everybody fell flat on their face. That seems to me to be a pretty good indication of the power of God on the scene. Well, if that's what he means, then he's saying the glory of the latter house, and that's got to be the last day church, is going to be greater than they had in Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. I'd be okay with that. Or it could mean the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost as referred to in Acts chapter 2 and the things that resulted from that like the healings and the miracles and all the things that took place in the early days of the church. Which one is it? (laughs) Well, they both result in the same thing and that's the presence and the power of God. So I don't care which one you pick. And he said the glory of this latter house shall be greater. Not the same. He didn't say it'd be like it. He said it would be greater than of the former. Saith the Lord of hosts. You notice how God keeps calling himself by name? Verse 7, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with his glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. It's almost like God's trying to prove himself by using his name as the evidence or the guarantee. The Bible says when he made a covenant with Abraham, that when God could swear by no greater than himself, he swore by him by his own name. That's what he's doing here. He's saying this is the way it's going to be, and this is the only way it's going to be, and don't you doubt it for a minute. Then he concludes by saying, and in this place, this latter-day house, and in this place will I give peace, and then closes up by saying, saith the Lord of hosts. So what does that say? To me, that says there's going to be a distinction between those who are doers of the word, the glorious church. Certainly we know there's a distinction between the glorious church and those that portion of the church is living like the world, living like the unsaved. But he's saying that there will be a distinction between the church, the glorious church and the world and the glorious church and the, and the deceived church. If you'll allow me to use that term, I'm coining that over my own, but you understand what I mean by that, I hope. He says there's going to be a distinction. So if we understand the times, what are we to do? That's what this is all about, as far as I'm concerned. That was the whole purpose for me starting this series. If we understand the times, what then are we to do? Well, folks, the issue is very simple. It's very plain. You decide which part of the church you're going to be. You're going to be the deceived church that lives like the world? No, Pastor Mike, I want to be part of the glorious church. Then quit having the arguments of whether or not it's okay to drink. Quit having the arguments, is it okay to do this or do that? Everybody else is doing it. Other Christians are doing it. Shut up about those arguments. Make the decision once and for all, are you going to be the glorious church or are you going to live like the world? Quit the complaints, quit the arguments about Christian tattoos. Well, if I get a tattoo, is that going to keep me out of heaven? No, it'll just make you look like the world. We shouldn't talk like the world. The word of God should be in our lips. We shouldn't live like the world. We shouldn't eat and drink like the world. Those are the two things that Jesus said would be taking place in the day that he comes back. He said people will be eating and drinking. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean nobody else eats and drinks? 
Well, it can't mean that. You've got to eat and drink to live. What does he mean? He's talking about there's going to be something about lifestyle, eating and drinking lifestyles. That identify the world. Now, now, folks, I get it. I understand. I don't live nearly a loose enough life to suit some of you. I get that. I know some of you are really not happy with the, with the, the strictness that I stay with drinking and stuff like that because you want to. And to be honest with you, personally, I don't care. Go ahead. But I do what I do because of what I'm called to do. If I drink, somebody gets hurt. If I drink, somebody's hurt spiritually. If I get a tattoo, somebody's going to get hurt spiritually. If I talk like everybody else, then somebody gets hurt spiritually. Now, you may say, well, Pastor Mike, that nobody's going to get hurt if I drink or if I get my tattoo or if I, if I uh, smoke or do anything like that. Nobody's going to get hurt with me. Then my question is, why isn't anybody looking at you? Do they not know you're a Christian? Now, for some, that means I'm bound in legalism. Oh, Pastor Mike, you just came from that that association. You just came from those denominations. You just came from that background. Brother Hagen was too strict. You just came from that, and that's just being bound in legalism. Paul said it was the love of God. Paul said, if I do it, then other people are going to get hurt, so I won't do it because of the love of God within me. Now, you call it whatever you want to. I'm going to call it what the Bible calls it. Now, I don't care. Personally, I don't care. But I'm so tired of the arguments. And folks, tell me, young people, tell me, is this not the way that the devil tries to prompt you to do it? Everybody else is doing it. Well, great. Let's be part of the deceived church. You know what I've done? I've started recording the Real Housewives of Orange County. I gag for an hour every time I watch this show. But you know why I do it? Because I want to see what real Christians look like. Because every one of those idiot women are standing on there talking about Jesus in some form or another. They're in competition with each other about who's the most saved and who's the most Christian. But they're acting like they're Christians. And it helps to remind me, this is why God sent me here. I've gotten to where I won't go to other states because people will say, oh, that TV show, that's where you are. God, no, it's not. I want to say, no, it's not, but it is. And folks, i got to tell you, there's more of them than there are of me. Now, God loves every one of those women, and he wants them to turn around. But for goodness sakes, that's what so many people think Christianity is nowadays. That's not what it's supposed to be. So what do we do? Well, if you understand the times, your choice is simple. You decide whether or not you're going to be part of the glorious church or part of the deceived church. It's just that simple. And there's only one distinction, and that is the word of God. For me and my house, we live by the word. And I only wish I could control the other people in my house. And in this case, I'm not talking about Beth. Okay, Pastor Mike, I want to be part of the glorious church. What do I do? Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. 
Folks, it takes a determination, but it also takes a move of the Holy Ghost. Notice that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. We just read that over in James 5. Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And the thing that brings about that precious fruit of the earth is not you living right. I wish that was the case. I wish that our living right would bring about the precious fruit of the earth. Now, it'll help us reach people. There's no question about that. It'll help us reach people. If I live like the unsaved, how can I have credibility to tell them Jesus is the answer? So living right is certainly an important part. One of the things that Paul talks about people being deceived by is those who tell them you don't have to live right. That's the number one thing Paul warned people against in the letters that he wrote. So living right is important. No question about that. But it's going to take more than us just living right to get the job done. It says he has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. It's going to take a move of the Holy Ghost. It's going to take an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, folks, if you understand the times, you understand that this is the time of the latter rain. If you understand the times, this is without question the time of the latter rain. Well, what's going to happen if we do that? So the Lord shall make bright clouds. The margin of my Bible says instead of bright clouds, it says lightnings. If you look up the origin of that word, you'll see that it means two things. It means a display of power, and it means a manifestation of his presence. It's talking about the glory of God. That bright cloud is the glory cloud that's spoken up throughout the Old Testament. The lightnings is the power that's associated with it. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. Showers is an outpouring of rain. A shower isn't a flood. A shower is... An outpouring can can be a light shower, it can be a drizzle, it can be a mist, or it can be a shower that lasts a little longer. But he's talking about outpourings of the Holy Ghost. He's talking about individual moves of the Holy Ghost. He's talking about things where the Holy Ghost will manifest himself for specific purposes at specific times. I used to read this floods. Let's pray for the latter rain and God will flood the earth with the knowledge of his glory. It's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says there'll be outpourings. You can even call them sprinklings if you want to. There'll be sprinklings of the Holy Ghost. For what purpose? To make grass in the field, to bring forth grass in the field. This grass in the field, he gives them grass, showers of rain and to everyone grass in the field. This grass in the field is the same thing that Paul, that uh, James was talking about in James 5, 7, where he says the precious fruit of the earth. He says the precious fruit of the earth comes about by these showers of rain or outpourings of the Holy Ghost. These bright clouds, these manifestations of the power of God and the presence of God. This is what brings forth precious fruit. The implication is simply this. If you don't ask, you won't get the early and the latter rain. The implication is you have to ask first and then God gives it. This does not happen because God just planned it from the beginning and it will take place. It will take place because there will be people who are faithful to pray. And it will take place not just for those who pray, but also in other parts of the world as well. God, in his mercy, will reach those who don't even know. But notice, folks, it's the precious fruit of the earth. It's not the precious fruit of America. It's the precious fruit of the earth. That means there's precious fruit in countries that won't allow the gospel to be preached that Jesus wants to reach. That means precious fruit of China. That means the precious fruit of Russia. That means the precious fruit of Muslim nations. It's the precious fruit of the earth. Folks, we're talking about something way, way, way bigger than us. And it's all part of God's plan. 
Now, this is the church that Jesus is coming back for. He takes the others because they're his children, too. But this is who he's coming back for. So what are we to do? First thing, decide. You're going to be part of the glorious church or the deceived church? Well, I don't want to really want to be part of either one, Pastor Mike. I want to be in the middle. Let me tell you where the middle is. The middle is in deception. There's only one way out of deception, and that is to make the word of God a part of your life. Not to make the word of God part of part of your life. But to sell out. Aren't you glad Jesus finished at the cross? He didn't start to hurt and say, forget this. We'll take what good we've done and and let that be good enough. No, he finished. He was 100% committed. That's the same thing he expects of you. That's the same thing he requires of us. Folks, the Christian life is hard. You know why it's hard? Because you have to turn away from so many other influences. The Christian life is wonderful because when you find out the power of God, then living the committed, consecrated Christian life is so much better than what the world was offering you anyway. But there's a hardness to it. There's a fight to it. That's why Paul says, as good soldiers, put on the armor of God as good soldiers into your hardness. There's a hardness to it. And anybody tells you there's not, they're lying to you. There's a hardness to it. There's a turning away. There's a deciding between, is it my friends or is it the word of God? You know how many people pick churches based on where their friends are? Way too many. You should make your friends around who have made the same commitment that you have to the things of God. Because those are the only friends that are going to be strengths to you. Everybody else is going to pull you away. Everybody else is going to be a drag on your life. There's a hardness to that. There's a difficulty. There's a discipline that's required if you're going to walk in the things of God. That's why I live the life that I live. That's why I won't do what other people say that other normal Christians do. Because there's a discipline that's required. I have to separate myself if I'm going to operate in the things God wants me to operate in. And what I've given up is nothing to what I'm offered. I'm not telling you you have to do the same thing. I'm not your God. I'm not your Lord. I'm not your master. But I know this. I know that the Bible says that Jesus is made unto us sanctification. That means the Jesus that saved you, expects you, and already lives within you and empowers you to be separated from the world. Now, whether you take advantage of that is up to you or not. Same scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.30, same scripture that says he's made unto you sanctification, says he's made unto you wisdom. Clearly, not all Christians operate in the wisdom that Jesus has made them. So it's your choice. It's up to you. My job is very simple. As Augustine said, to tell the ignorant both what is occurring at present and what is probable in the future. This is what's happening, folks. This is what's happening around us. This is the way the devil's working it against us. This is the way the devil is attacking God. He's attacking God politically. He's attacking God by, under, by destroying the underpinnings, the foundations that this country was founded upon, and those foundations are biblical principles. The reason that America has been successful for as long as we have is because of the biblical principles that we were established on. Those are going away. What are you going to do when they do? 
What are you going to do? You better have a foundation under you before it happens. Before it's completed. It's happening already. But before it finishes up, you better have a foundation under you. You better be building your house upon the rock. Because things are not going to get better in the world. Things are not going to get better politically. Things are not going to get better economically. Nobody's even talking about the economics situation changing. You're just supposed to accept the way things are. And that's for a reason. It's for the devil to control you. You have the power, you have the ability, and in my opinion, you have the responsibility to live out from under the devil's attempt to control you in every aspect of life, including politically, including governmentally, including economically, including socially. Folks, I don't care if every church in America comes out in in support of gay marriage. Gay marriage is still wrong. It just is. It isn't wrong because I say it's wrong. It's wrong because God said it's wrong. I don't care what the political issue is. I don't care what the social issue is. What the Bible says is true is going to be true for me. And it's what I'll stand up and say in the church. Whether people like it or not. I may be the only one left. I hope not. I hope you stick with me. But if you don't, I'm going to keep doing what the Bible says to do. I'm not worried about losing people. Been there, done that. I'm not worried about losing finances. Been there, done that. And if there's anything that I have as a foundation in our experience, our church experience, it is that I'm not counting on anybody. That means I'm not afraid of anybody's actions. I'm not afraid of anybody leaving. I'm not afraid of anybody pulling their money out. I'm not afraid of anything. God's seen us through impossible situations. And he told me at the time that it was for preparation. I thought, oh, dear God, preparation, you mean it's going to get worse? But what I found that to mean is I'm not beholden to anybody. I'm going to say what's true, and I'm going to live what the Bible says. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing to us what's taking place around us and what is yet to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're coming back for a glorious church. We commit ourselves to be part of that church. We refuse to be deceived. Though numerous others are, if the majority is, we refuse to be. But we will hold fast to the word of God. We will commit ourselves to it. We will refuse to accept others' thoughts instead of what you said. Lord, we ask you for the rain, even as your word says. You said that if we would, we'd ask you for the Holy Ghost to move. You said, Father, you'd give us bright clouds, a display of your power and a manifestation of your presence. You said you'd give us showers of rain. That's what we seek, Father. We seek showers of rain, outpourings of the Holy Ghost that bring people into the kingdom of God, that bring people into the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that bring people into the healing that Jesus purchased, that bring people into financial freedom that Jesus paid the price for. That bring people into peace. You said you would fill this house, this latter house with peace. Let this be a place where people run to because it's founded upon your word. Thank you, Father, for outpourings of the Holy Ghost. We thank you for it for our church. We thank you for it in our individual lives so that we can reach others. Father, my prayer is that more people would be reached by the people that come to this church than we reach in altar calls here. 
Father, we don't pray selfishly. We pray for everyone that names the name of Jesus to be awakened to who you are, to be awakened to who the devil is, and to be awakened to who they are in Christ. They might, they might live a Jesus life here on the earth. Father, we pray that there would be outpourings of the Holy Ghost in nations that won't allow the gospel to be preached. Pour your spirit out behind the Muslim resistance to the gospel. Reach the Muslims, Father. Reach the Arabs. Reach the Jews. Let there be, Father, a revival around the world sparked by the outpourings of the Holy Ghost. Signs and wonders and miracles, Father, is what we're asking for. Visions and dreams. Supernatural and even spectacular occurrences. In the name of Jesus. We ask you for the rain, Father. Show us how we can make adjustments that we might manifest the glory of God in our lives in a greater measure than we do now. We don't count ourselves to have arrived or attained anything, Father. We look to the leading of the Holy Ghost, how we can be more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your great plan for the church at the end. Thank you for letting us be a part of that great plan. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. 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 Let's all stand together. Excuse me. There we go. We pray like this every Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. We pray according to Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. So if you'd like to do more of that, then I want to encourage you to come be a part of that prayer meeting at 5 o'clock in the fellowship hall. Think on these things. Not my words, not what I said about it. But think on what we saw that the Bible said about the last days. Folks, there's going to be a lot of the church, in my opinion, in my thinking, It's going to be a majority of the church that's deceived. It's going to be a minority of the church that operates in the glory of God. Think on these things and decide for yourself where you want to fall. Which side you want to land in. It's up to you. It's entirely up to you. And there's never a more critical decision for you to make because we know the times that we live in. Thank you for being part of us. We love you. God bless you. Have a great day.